Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So at the top of every year, we do something called our DNA series, and our DNA consists of three different things. Our unique name, our mission, and our vision. And two weeks ago, we looked at our unique name. Last week, we looked at our mission. And so this week, we're gonna be taking a look at our vision. So what is the vision of Exilic? Well, oftentimes organizations tend to use the word mission and vision very synonymously and interchangeably. But these two words actually mean different things. So your mission is what you want to do. Your vision, however, is who you want to be. So what is the mission of Exilic? What do we want to do? We want to inspire thinkers to believe. We want to inspire believers to think. That's what we want to do. That's why we're here. But now the question is, okay, now that we're doing this, who do we want to be? What kind of people do we want to form? And this is where our vision comes into play because here's who we want to be. We want to be 21st century disciples who think critically and act positively. That's who we want to be. Now, why not just say we want to be disciples who think critically and act positively? Why say 21st century disciples who think critically and act positively? So here's the reason why. Uh, on the one hand, uh, our beliefs never change and they should never change. On the other hand, the world that we live in, it has radically changed. It's very different from the world of yesterday. And so one of the questions that the modern church needs to continually ask itself is this, what does it look like to follow Jesus in our cultural moment today? Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes is correct in saying that there's nothing new under the sun, but at the same time, it does seem like every generation experiences a, a different type of world. And so, Again, the question that we have to continually ask ourselves is, what does it look like to follow Jesus in our cultural moment today? And I say that, especially in light of what just took place a week and a half ago in our nation's capital, because a week and a half ago, as you all know, there was an insurrection terrorist attack uh, in the Capitol building. And what was so disturbing about um, all that was taking place that day was that there were also signs um, that said Jesus saves or Jesus 2020 and there were images of crosses during a political rally. And my fear is that Christianity is continually being associated with Christian 
nationalism. And my other fear is that because of this association, my fear is that Christians by the day are losing social capital in our society. This is, this is one of the reasons why, I don't know if you felt this before, but I certainly have. Uh, whenever you tell someone you are a Christian, you almost feel a little embarrassed. And it's not even because of what you believe. You feel embarrassed, not because of what you believe, but because of the cultural baggage that's associated with Christianity today. And while losing social capital in and of itself is not a big deal for biblical reasons, that's actually been our narrative for the past 2,000 years. Jesus himself says, you will be hated, you will be persecuted. And so for losing social capital for biblical reasons, because of what we believe, that's not a big deal. But when we're losing social capital for unbiblical reasons, for things that we don't even believe, then that becomes a problem. And that is something that we need to address. So never in a million years did I ever think that uh, we would be doing a response to Christian nationalism, but <laughs> here we are. And so uh, that's what we're gonna be talking about today. What is Christian nationalism? What does it mean to be a holy nation? And how do we regain our social capital uh, in our society today? So let me kick off uh, this sermon with something I also did not ever anticipate doing, but uh, I wanna begin with something that one of my favorite fictional characters, Dwight Schrute, once said. And the, the real Dwight Schrute, Rain Wilson, says this, The metamorphosis of Jesus Christ from a humble servant of the abject poor to a symbol that stands for gun rights, prosperity theology, anti-science, limited government that neglects the destitute, and fierce nationalism is truly the strangest transformation in human history. And he's right. So the question is, how do we even get here? And what is Christian nationalism? Well, in their book, uh, Taking America Back for God, uh, Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead say this, that Christian nationalism is a fusion of Christianity and American civic life. And the danger of fusing Christianity with American civic life is this, it both uh, simultaneously distorts the Christian faith and it also distorts America's democracy. And it's usually under, under the guise of white supremacy and racial subjugation as well. So that's what Christian nationalism is, a fusion of these two things. But listen to what Peter has to say about who we are as a holy nation in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so what is Peter talking about when he says that we are a holy nation? Was he referring to Israel as a geopolitical territory, the small plot of land somewhere in the Middle East? Was Peter prophesying 2,000 years later about this, uh, this land called America that would take the place of Israel? Who is Peter referring to when he says that we are God's chosen people and God's holy nation? Take a look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here, what Peter is talking about is this, 
that God's holy nation is not characterized by geopolitical factors. Rather, what Peter is saying is this, God's holy nation is characterized by spiritual factors. It is those that have received mercy and the grace of God in their lives that are God's chosen people and a part of God's holy nation. And so what that means is whether you live in America, China, or Iraq, if you have a relationship with God, have received the mercy and grace of God in your life, you are now a part of God's holy nation, which is why in verse 11 it says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. If God's people belong to a geopolitical territory, why does Peter say that we are foreigners and exiles? The reason why Peter says we're foreigners and exiles is because our true citizenship is in a different geopolitical spiritual territory, and that is heaven. We are nothing more than foreigners and exiles here on earth. Our true citizenship lies somewhere else. And so it's very puzzling when you watch the news and political rallies where people are waving signs that say Jesus saves and they have altars that they're carrying, and it's right next to an American flag. That's very puzzling to me. And so this is where Christian nationalism is a counterfeit kingdom that is antithetical to the kingdom of God. Okay, America is not a city on a hill. We don't fix our eyes on old glory. The church is a city on a hill, and we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that we can't be patriotic? Of course not. Um, I love being American, and I still think that, um, despite the dumpster fire we've been experiencing, I still think that America is the greatest country in the world. But there's a difference between being, there's a difference between patriotism and nationalism. Nationalism is patriotism on steroids. It is turning a good thing into a God thing. It is the idolatry of the country and the nation that we live in. But notice what Peter says here again. We are foreigners and exiles here. And we are a holy nation that is a part of a different geopolitical territory. And so the fact that Jesus' name is being used and misused in this way is very sad and disturbing to say the least. And so one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves as modern followers of Jesus today is this, how do we regain social capital in our society today when people are increasingly associating Christianity with Christian nationalism? Well, take a look with me at verse 12. Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And so what Peter is saying here is this, if we want Christianity to be attractive and not unattractive, the way to regain social capital in our society today is by living good lives characterized by good deeds. That's how we regain social capital. Uh, last week, we talked about our mission, and our mission is, to, again, to inspire thinkers to believe, inspire believers to think. But the question we have to ask ourselves is this, what are we saved for? I mean, is, is it just to go to heaven? I don't think so. Otherwise, why does God grant us one more day here on earth? 
I don't think it's just to go to heaven, but I also think it's to have heaven inside of us and for the kingdom of God's ethics to intrude into the kingdoms of this world. I think that's also why God has saved us, uh, to, to, to love our neighbor as well, which is why I am excited because this year, our goal, our aspiration is to mobilize 200 people from within our own congregation to serve in at least one event through one of Hope for New York's affiliates. And so you'll hear more about um, how you can practically serve uh, in the town hall meeting tonight with Albert. But we not only want to think critically, we also have to act positively as well. Additionally, uh, as you heard from the announcements, we'll be kicking off a new book club on February 1st, which is the first day of Black History Month. And we'll be doing a book club on uh, how to fight racism, which is uh, the scholar Jamar Tisby's new book. And so again, uh, all of these things are designed to change the narrative of what biblical Christianity is really all about. But you know what? It's not, we're not just doing these things to change the narrative. We're doing these things simply to love our neighbors as well, even if they might be our political enemies. That's why we're doing these things. Uh, you know what's really interesting? In, um, in Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus has... Uh, just been resurrected. So this is after his resurrection, but before his ascension back to uh, God the Father. And so there's a period about 40 days after the resurrection, before the ascension, where Jesus is revealing his resurrected self to his followers and, and everyone. And what's really interesting is that um, when his followers see the resurrected Jesus, they're thinking, whoa, you, you're the real deal. You, you have this superhuman power because you just rose again from the dead, that means that you're powerful enough to even just kick these Romans out of here. And so you know what they say to him in Acts chapter 1? They say, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom back to Israel? And you know what they're thinking? The kingdom that they're thinking about is a small geopolitical land called Israel's. Uh, and, and so they're thinking in, in, from that paradigm. What's fascinating is Jesus' response to that question. Because you know what he says? He doesn't say, yes, I am here to destroy the Romans and kink them out so that you can uh, you know, have ownership over this land again. He doesn't say that. You know what he says? He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you can kick the Romans out. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth because his kingdom is not limited to a small plot of land in the Middle East. His kingdom is the ends of the earth, people from every tribe and tongue. And the way his kingdom advances is not with the sword or with guns. The way that his kingdom advances is through his witnesses. And these witnesses are carrying a specific message of mercy and grace. And that is how the kingdom of God advances. I was, um, I was once listening to a debate between a uh, Muslim scholar and a Christian scholar. And uh, the Muslim scholar says to the Christian scholar, in Islam, Allah is merciful. But in Christianity, God is also merciful, but he can only be merciful at the expense of his own son. So why does Jesus have to die? Why not just wave your hand in the air and 
pardon everyone's sins, why does your God have to send his son to die in the place of the people? And I think that's a great question. Why can't God just wave his hand, you know, hands in the air and just forgive us? Why, why all this blood and the cross and all that? So here's, a, here's an example why. Uh, imagine you have an iPhone and someone comes along and uh, they, uh, they hit your hand and your iPhone drops and the screen breaks. It's completely fractured and broken. At that point, you have two options. You can either make them pay or you can pay for the debt yourself. But here's the point. Someone has to pay. Something's been broken here. There's a, there's a financial debt uh, that is here. So you can make them pay or you can pay. When it comes to our relationship with God, there is also a fracturing that is taking place. Our relationship with God is broken and it's not because of financial reasons, but it's because of moral reasons. And so someone needs to pay because God is also a God of justice. But this cost is not two or three or four hundred dollars. It comes at the expense of his own son, which demonstrates the significance and the severity of the acts that we do and the significance of our relationship with him. But here's the thing, rather than making us pay for our broken relationship with God, what he does is that he pays for it himself. And Jesus willingly, voluntarily, and gladly dies in our place for us so that what we receive is nothing short of grace uh, and mercy in our lives. And I think it's at this point where we uh, constantly come into bang our heads on the wall, particularly if we feel like, I'm not that bad of a guy though, like I still don't really feel the need for anyone to atone for my sins. But let me put it this way. If all of social media and the social media mob, if everyone knew your deepest and your darkest sins on a daily basis, trust me, you would have no friends. Every one of your friends would abandon you because of how disgusted they are with the way that you think and the way that you live and the hypocrisy that is so pervasive in your life. If everyone knew everything that God knows about you, you would have zero friends. But here's the thing, God knows everything about us, all of it, but he never abandons us. He doesn't cancel us, he doesn't unfriend us. He dies for us. Th that is how much he loves us. And that, that, is, that is unfathomable to me, that he knows everything about me and still sticks close to me and is even willing to give up his life for me. And that, that really is the good news of Christianity and the kind of love that we are also called to show others as well. Because the kingdom that we are a part of is a kingdom of mercy. This is why repeatedly throughout scripture, the language of mercy triumphs over judgment is used. When you hear the word triumph, it's it signifies defeat. Mercy defeats judgment. Why don't we experience judgment for what we've done? For breaking God's quote-unquote iPhone. We don't experience it because he takes the judgment in our place. And so in Christianity, we don't get judgment because mercy triumphs over judgment because of what Jesus did on the cross for us when he experienced the judgment and wrath of God in our place. And so what that means is that we are called now to be like Christ 
We are called to be a people of mercy. And I say that in particular because this week is a pretty big week uh, as we see the inauguration of a new president. And although I, I am not sure what this week is going to look like, I suspect that it will be a pretty tumultuous time. And it is precisely during moments like this that this presents an opportunity for us to change the narrative about what Christians are really all about. We are a people of justice. We are a people of mercy. We are a people of grace. We are people that are part of a different kingdom ethic. And we are called to intrude these kingdom ethics into the kingdoms of this world to show them a better way. We do that. We can flip the script on the narrative that we see today. Let's pray.